I think that means I'm next. Yesterday, we talked about created for community. You know, we live in a society of individualism, but when we were created, God created man and woman, and God lives in community, in Trinity, and created us to live in relationship with each other. The result of the extreme individualism is a focus purely on self and selfishness. It's the black hole of selfishness that sucks us into just thinking of ourselves. And at the end of the day, of course, selfishness is hell because it is when we come to the place where we no longer are interested in anything else but ourselves. I recently, my wife and I recently joined Planet Fitness. I don't know if you've ever heard of that particular exercise facility, but feeling a need to be a little more physically fit. We have one that's fairly close to where we live. And I was really quite impressed when I went into the facility because welcome to the judgment-free zone. <laughs> they aren't there to judge you as to how fit you are or how you look or anything else, but they post this sign everywhere, judgment-free. It's a judgment-free zone. Maybe we need a sign like that in the church. It's a judgment-free zone, along with a sign that there's free grace here. We heard what many people think of church yesterday when we read half the people who go to church are hypocrites. They go because it's a thing to do, not because they believe it's a status thing. They think, I went to church today, so I'm a good person. I can pray and believe my own way. And there are a lot of people that believe that way. A collection, is church a collection of individual isolationists or a community of faith living out the love of Jesus? <clears throat> How can we build local churches that express love and acceptance, that are judgment-free zones, churches that represent Jesus? When I first moved to Collegedale, and this was a long time ago now, I, uh, we had twin daughters, we still have twin daughters, but we, have, we had young twin daughters at that time, and they were about, what, nine or ten years old. And we moved from California, and we promised them that when we got to Tennessee, we would get them a pet because they didn't have a pet in California. So that was one way to kind of convince them that this was a move that they ought to participate in. <laughs> and so when we arrived in Tennessee in Collegedale, we decided to get them a pet. And there was a friend who had a, uh, a litter of cats. And so we figured that was the easiest and cheapest kind of pet to get. And so we got them a kitten. And it was a cute kitten. We called it Promise because we promised it to the girls when we would get to Tennessee. And it was a, 
a great thing. They had a lot of fun with it, and one day they couldn't find it. And we looked and we looked and we couldn't figure out where the cat was. We didn't keep it in the house all the time, and so we thought maybe it had run away or something. And after looking for a long time, I discovered the cat. It had crawled up the wood pile, because we had a wood pile, and had, in the process, had pulled the log down on its neck and actually had hung itself on the log pile, and it was dead. Well, we, uh, we buried it and decided we needed to find another cat. And one day, my daughters were walking home from a friend's house, and they heard this plaintive mewing in the field close to where they were walking. They looked down there, and there was a cat. They'd found a kitten that someone had probably thrown away. I mean, it was, you know, you can go to a grocery store and you pretty easily get a cat these days with kids giving out cats in front of the store. So somebody had lost or thrown away this cat, and so they brought it home, and this became our new pet. We didn't call it Promise. We called this one Slippers because it had little white paws. And Slippers was became a part of the family. You know, we, they dressed it. They did all these things that little kids do with cats. Of course, the cats don't love that dressing very much, but anyway, they, they played with it a lot. Well, there was one day I was in my office at the Collegedale Church, and I looked down on my wrist, and I saw a black speck, and I reached for it, and it jumped off, and it was a flea. <laughs> and this cat, apparently, because it was, again, found kind of in the woods, was covered with fleas. I called it flea bag, but the <laughs> girls didn't like me to call it that. I had a friend who said that he had a special dip that you could dip the animal in and it would kill all the fleas, kind of for farm animals or something like that. And I think this was before the time they had these pills where you could give it to a cat and it would, in through its body, make it not too tasty for fleas, I guess. Anyway, I got this, uh, this uh, liquid and filled the sink with water in the kitchen and uh, read the instructions. I don't know, it said, you know, one tablespoon with two gallons of water. I thought, well, one tablespoon is good. Two tablespoons are better, aren't they? I mean, you know, we're really going to get rid of the fleas on this cat. And so I made this rather strong solution, and it, and, you know, dipped the animal in the solution. Well, I said, if, if dipping is good, holding under is better. <laughs> And so I held it, not totally under, I allowed it to breathe, but I mean, just really soaked it good with this solution and then took the cat out with the hair dryer. We dried it off and set it down on the kitchen floor. And fairly quickly, the cat started to walk like it was drunk. You know, it staggered a little bit and it wasn't walking straight and it was just, just really wasn't doing it. Well, I thought, well, maybe... Maybe we had too much of this poison that we put on it. So I brought it back to the sink, much to its dismay, <laughs> put it back in fresh water this time and sprayed it off with fresh water, rinsing it off really well, dried it again with a hairdryer, 
set it down on the floor, but it, it wasn't looking very good. And it started foaming at the mouth like it was almost rabid, you know, it was foaming at the mouth. And, uh, of course, my girls are really distressed. You know, Daddy killed the cat. <laughs> we already lost one cat. We weren't going to lose another one. So this, of course, was Friday evening, which is a typical time for disasters to happen. And I called the animal hospital in downtown Chattanooga. And I, I described what I'd done, and they said, well, you, you probably poisoned the cat. But if you bring it down here, we can give it an injection, and it may save the cat. So I load the car, in, I load the car with the cat in the box and rush down to the animal hospital in Chattanooga. They gave the cat an injection. I brought it home, and the cat survived, and I was accepted back into the house. <laughs> and that cat lived with us for many years. In fact, it lived with us until the girls were married and gone. And we had that cat as a part of the family for years and years. Eventually, it, uh, my wife and I were walking across the street on an evening. I think it probably goes a Friday evening again. And it darted across the street to be with us in front of a car and got hit by a car. And so that was its demise. But why was the life, you know, I spent a lot of time and, I don't know, 40 bucks, drove down for an hour and a so down to Chattanooga to get this cat fixed. Not that kind of fixed, but <laughs> other kind of fixed. Why is it was so important to us? It had become a part of the family. I mean, you know, this was a free cat. You, they're a dime a dozen. You, not hard to get another one. Let this one die and we'll get another one. No, it had become a part of the family. My daughter had a cat in California where she now lives that she'd had for only less than a year it ate some poison or something and died just about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And it was, they had spent, I think, five or six hundred dollars to keep it alive. Why would you do that? It had become a part of the family. It had become a part of the family. They had played with it, they had dressed it, they petted it, they fed it, and the potential loss was causing pain. How much more should the family of God, how much more should the local church live in love for each other, not judging others when there's pain, when there's divorce, when there's problems, when there's issues, but expressing, creating a space where you can feel the love of God? We find that there are many people in our communities that used to come to church, you know, why would anyone leave a community that was loving, that was accepting, that was a community of, that was a family, that was like being home? Well, I don't think they would if we could create that kind of community where people feel loved. They feel the love of Jesus and they feel like they're in the family of God. It plays like a soap opera, actually. The TV camera zooms in to get a close-up of her face. 
She's beautiful, but she's bad. At least she had a bad reputation, and it was a deserved bad reputation. She was a blot on the community, and everyone knew that she wore a scarlet letter. He was there, too, at the party, draped over a couch. No one in the room knew that they particularly had something going on between the two of them. But that is, no one knew except maybe the dinner guests. She wasn't supposed to come to this little get-together, this high-class reception, but she knew the host and decided she would come anyway without an invitation. He couldn't throw her out. She could tell. She could make a scene. So she really wouldn't have come at all, except she wanted to do something for the special guest that was there. This guest had given her some major counseling, and she wanted to show how grateful she was. Normally, her gratitude would have been shown in immoral ways. Normally, it would have been, but this counselor had led her out of immorality, and so she determined she would give him a gift. If she would have given him a check or a picture, it might have been done discreetly, but a bottle of perfume? If the bottle had been sealed, it would have been okay, but it was opened. If it had been opened just a crack, it might have been okay, but it was poured all over him. You can imagine the smell that penetrated the room as Mary poured this perfume over Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The party was a party that Simon was throwing for Jesus because Jesus had healed Simon of leprosy. And so he'd invited all the people that were his friends and the people that knew what had happened. And it was a great party. And as the smell permeated the room and everyone's attention, all eyes were drawn towards Mary there at the foot of Jesus. The room got very quiet, you know, and you could, you could hear a pin drop. It's an embarrassing time when a reception, all the conversation suddenly stops and nobody knows what to say. In that embarrassing silence, some questions were asked about why this money was wasted in this way when it could have been given to the poor. Simon, the host, wasn't thinking about the waste of money, nor was he thinking about the smell in his dining room. He was thinking about the woman at the feet of Jesus. He knew what she was like. In fact, he knew more than anyone else in the room what she was like. And so he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Let's go back and let's read that story in Luke. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, in our context in our society, I suppose that doesn't sound like the right thing to do, but in that context and in that society, that was not totally inappropriate. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Pharisees find it easy to spot sinners, don't they? We find it easy, generally, to spot sinners. It's like we spoke of yesterday. We're quick to judge and evaluate people based on what they wear, what they look like. Yes, Simon the host spotted Mary the sinner. It was easy to spot her. She wore a scarlet letter. Sinners give themselves away. They do things that are clearly unacceptable. Do you know people like Simon, sin spotters? Are you a person like Simon that clearly sees the moat in the other person's eye and not the log in your own eye? You must be very careful if you see the faults of others very clearly. An efficiency expert concluded a lecture with a note of caution. You don't want to use these efficiency techniques at home, he said. Why not? asked someone in the audience. Well, the efficiency expert said, I watched my wife's routine at breakfast for years. She made lots of trips to the refrigerator, to the stove, to the table, to the cabinets, often carrying just one thing at a time. Honey, I suggested, why don't you try carrying several things at the same time? It would be more efficient. The person in the audience asked, did that save time? The expert replied, actually, yes. It used to take her 20 minutes to get breakfast ready. Now I do it in seven. <laughs> Got to be careful. Abbot Moses said, they who are conscious of their own sins have no eyes for the sins of their neighbors. As Dan Jackson said last night, we're all broken. We've all sinned. When we are aware of our own brokenness, we won't be so conscious of the sins of others. Sin spotters are uncomfortable with those that are obvious sinners. Those who wear sins like a badge, they classify people. They're wearing this, they must be like that. They do this, they are this kind of person. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of sinner she is. She is a sinner. What kind of woman is this, Simon? How would you classify her? Well, Simon, you should know. You led her into sin. Ellen White says Simon had led into sin the woman he now despised. She had been deeply wronged by him. But Simon felt himself more righteous than Mary, and Jesus desired him to see how great his guilt really was. Simon was the guilty one, guilty of sexual harassment, we might say, or much more than sexual harassment. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. See, sin spotters most clearly see in others the propensity towards sin they have in themselves. Who among us is not a sinner? People who spot problems in other people recognize those problems because those problems are in themselves. The only difference is some sinners have obvious 
sin, they smoke, they drink, they commit adultery. Some of us do less obvious things. We have road rage, we're selfish, we look at pornography, we're prideful. Jesus was able to distinguish between the sinner and the sin. He was able to accept sinners. They felt comfortable with him without approving their sin. He was able to affirm people without affirming what they did or affirming their behavior. One of the biggest problems today is our inability to distinguish between acceptance and approval. We can accept anyone into the church as a visitor, into our homes as a visitor, into our lives. We don't necessarily approve of everything they do, but they need to feel that we are not judging them. It needs to be a judgment-free zone. Parents who can't make the distinction end up alienating their own children who do things they don't approve of. They don't know how to disapprove of the child's behavior while yet loving and expressing the love to the child. They want to stand for the right though the heavens fall, and they uphold the standards without holding on to the child. Standards are made for man, not man for standards. We need to uphold the standards. We need higher standards. But when the standards are barriers between us and those who fail to reach the standards, then we've made standards a barrier to grace. When the law keeps people from church and fellowship, it has become a barrier to grace. Let us spend as much time holding on to the sinner as we do holding up the standards. When the community is not able to cope with dysfunctional people, it's a dysfunctional church. When a church is not able to love sinners, obvious sinners, it is a dysfunctional community. To accept someone does not mean we approve of all they did. Jesus was not blind to Mary's sin. He spotted her sin, but he wasn't a sin spotter. He knew of her problems, but he also knew of her heart. He brought salvation to Mary by accepting her. Because Christ allowed this woman to approach him, because he did not indignantly spurn her as one whose sins were too great to be forgiven, because he did not show that he realized she had fallen, Simon was tempted to think that he was not a prophet. Did you get the last part of Ellen White's statement? <clears throat> because he did not show that he realized she had fallen. He didn't even indicate that he realized she had a problem. He treated her like the queen of Sheba, no matter what she, even though she was a prostitute. How often do we feel driven to condemn, proving our purity rather than accepting others to enable them to become pure? The very things that saved Mary, Jesus' acceptance, were the things that caused Simon to think, well, she, he's not a prophet. It was Jesus' acceptance of Mary that made him think he was not a prophet. Why? What are prophets supposed to do in Simon's mind? Call fire down from heaven, burn up the wicked, point out the sins. If this man was a prophet, 
He wouldn't even allow this woman to touch him because this woman's been touching all kinds of men. Self-perceived righteousness creates blindness. How do you save the Simons of the world? How do you save the Pharisees of the world? See, it's the Simons of the world who see themselves as paragons of virtue and defenders of purity. It's the Simons of the world who have no sense of sin or sinfulness that are difficult to reach. These sin spotters are authorities on sin. They don't see it in themselves, so how do you save them? I know how I would have reached out to Simon. I would have laid it out all right there in front of God and everybody in the party. Simon, you hypocrite, you wonder why I'm friends with this sinner when you are the one who led her into sin. You wonder how I can accept her, yet you had no trouble accepting her in your bedroom. That's what I would have said to Simon. I would have told him off, and I would have been the Pharisee. You see, the Marys of the world, broken by sin and seeking a new life, I can accept. It's the putridly pure Pharisees I have trouble accepting, and that makes me a Pharisee. Lifting myself up in holy purity to condemn Pharisees puts me in their camp. Jesus had an opening. He could have nailed Simon. He could have confronted him right there in public in front of all his friends. But his thoughts were, how can I save Simon? Not how can I get even with him for not welcoming me to his home, but how can I save Simon? And so he tells a story. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I'd like you to think about this scene just a little bit. I don't know if this picture actually portrays it, but it does show him looking at a woman and saying to Simon, Do you see this woman? That's really an, a dumb question, isn't it? I mean, do you see this woman? She's right there. That's not a dumb question. That was Simon's problem. What did he see? He didn't see the woman. He saw the sinner. He saw the sensuality. He saw the sex. He saw the sin. The question isn't obvious. Simon didn't see the woman. Jesus says, Do you see this woman? Put on your glasses. Cut through your prejudices. Eliminate the categories. Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And finally, finally, Simon does see the woman. Jesus had healed Simon of leprosy. That was easy. He clearly understood his need. His fingers were falling off or whatever was happening with his leprosy. He knew he had a problem. Now Jesus healed him of Phariseeism. That was hard because he didn't see it until Jesus told this story. And Ellen White says, Simon was touched by the kindness of Jesus in not openly rebuking him before the guests. He had not been treated as he desired Mary to be treated. He saw that Jesus did not wish to expose his guilt to others, but sought by a true statement of the case to convince his mind and by pitying kindness subdue his heart. Stern denunciation would have hardened Simon against repentance, but patient admonition convinced him of his error. He saw the magnitude of the debt which he owed his Lord. His pride was humbled. He repented, and the proud Pharisee became a lowly, self-sacrificing disciple. Simon is saved. His pride was humbled. He became a self-sacrificing disciple. Simon received salvation the same way Mary did, by grace. Grace that accepts a person allows the person to get rid of the sin. I have a hard time getting rid of sin if I'm not accepted. It's the security of God's love that enables me to deal with my sin. It's the security of God's love that enables me to survive going over Fool's Hill. It is not condemnation that gives strength. It is not criticism that gives strength. It is not sin spotters that change people. The saving of Simon. Simon's eyes were opened by Jesus' sensitive treatment of him, and he was able to see his true self. Ellen White also says, must the sinner wait until he has repented before he can come to Jesus? Is repentance to be made an obstacle between the sinner and the Savior? Nothing is to stand in the way of anyone and Jesus. And so nothing is to stand in the way of anyone and us because we represent Jesus and his love. And so we represent Jesus and even their sin, even their behavior, even what they look like, should not stand between them and us. What kind of communities do we have? How do we live in community? Simon, do you see this woman, church member? What do you see? What do we see? The homosexuality, the chain around the neck, the heavy makeup, the wine in the closet, the alcoholic breath, rebellious behavior, foul language, tattoos and piercing. What do we see? When that is all we see, we'll stay clear of them until they clean up their lives. When that's all we see, we will not accept them. Do we see the woman? Or are we distracted by the externals, the category of prostitute? 
the category of sinner. Simon, do you see this woman? Church member, what we see will determine whether we can bring grace to that person. What we see will determine if we'll have caring, loving communities. What does your church see when the university student comes home from, for the summer to your local church? The externals? The child who came home, the young person caught between childhood and adulthood. Throw your arms around those young people. Welcome them home. What you see will determine what you get. If we see just the scarlet letter, or do we see the person? Jesus saw Mary, and his loving acceptance of Mary changed her, for he was probably the first man who saw through her facade of sin. All the other men she knew just saw her sex. Jesus was not ignorant of her sin, but saw Mary and accepted her. The saving of Simon, as the saving of Mary, came from the same place, grace, undeserved unmerited favor. They didn't get what they deserved, and it changed their lives. In the historical novel by Victor Hugo, first published in 1862, considered one of the greatest novels of the 19th century, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, who served an unjustified many years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread for his family, is finally released from prison. He finds a place to stay in a monastery overnight. And the experience he has there changes his life. Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed (laughs) that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry! Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him! You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? 
Madam Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And, of course, you know the story continues and he does become a, a totally changed person. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them what that which will save them, love and acceptance. Remember the saving of Simon. Eternal Father in heaven, help us to see people differently. Help us to see people through clear eyes of grace rather than anxious eyes of judgment. Help us to provide love and acceptance to everyone we meet and to create communities of faith where people can experience that for Jesus' sake. Amen.